Hey, I have an artifact for you that I want to show to oh, you. Oh, please do. And I want you to react okay. to it. Okay. Ready? Yes. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. Tell us about what you see. Oh, I see a worn, a well-worn copy. And I'm assuming Brian has read this several times now. Uh, Mostly when I was 12 years old, but yes, I have. The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. I found out that that book... So somewhere along the line, and you, mm-hmm. as a scholar of American religion, you can tell me if I'm this very is, familiar with this tell me book. if this is true or rings true at least. Was the number one best-selling American book besides the Bible for the entire decade of the 1970s? That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Hal Lindsey, weirdly, I I know a lot about this book. Um, Hal Lindsey wrote it in response. He he wrote it as part of a Bible study that he was doing with um, students in Southern California, really? college students oh, in Southern California. Yeah, he. He came out west because he heard about the lost souls of the hippie generation. Mm-hmm. And he came and he taught them um, a very traditional premillennial dispensationalist idea of the world, which is to say that the world was going to essentially go to the bad place in a handbasket um, before the second coming or the return of Jesus, and that um, the entire world would be going to war and going through all of these trials and tribulations. Mm. And he was teaching this in a college age Bible study. You and I teach college students oh, yeah. and we know college students eat this stuff up. Oh, they, they, they even students who don't even know what the rapture is are prepared to like defend it nearly to the death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and just like the idea that there is a, a destiny to the world and, and that you have a place in it, you know, I mean, just oh, something about yes. when you're like 18. Oh yeah. As a, bi- as a big theme. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. You know, I brought that out because timely. Yes. We're yes. Uh, kind of doing something of a hybrid newsy type episode here on the theme of Russia. Russia plays yes. a huge role in this book. Yes, Russia Major does. role in this book. I mean, yes. I remember all kinds of stuff in here about Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog and Yeah, the, this was written at the height of the Cold War. Um, or just as it was ramping up to its heights. And so yep. Hal Lindsey is basically using the, the, the TLDR of that book is that Hal Lindsey uses the book of Revelation as a blueprint for understanding the end of time and reads Revelation onto the geopolitical situation of the late 20th century. And so Lindsey, great American that he is, makes America the kind of like, uh, uh, well, in his mind, America and Israel are, you know, um, starring players. Israel is actually the, the starring role. And then Russia is the great enemy. My name is Brian Doak. I'm a biblical scholar, and today we're talking about Russia and religion in Russia. My name is Leah Payne. I'm a historian of American religion, and we are bringing you a special news report. We are not specialists on on religion in Russia or Christianity in Russia or the spiritual spirituality of Vladimir Putin, but we've done a little bit of research and we've got some things to share, and it just feels like the right thing to talk about. I don't know how how did you feel when you when you saw this news about bombings and this invasion? I felt oh. my stomach just I felt like a pit in my stomach. Absolutely. I mean, I think I I was actually watching. Um, I follow a lot of journalists on social media, so I was just up late at night watching it. Mm. And I realized that both you and I grew up during a certain 
Cold War moment wherein Russia was, um, well, the, the Soviet Union was a very, it loomed large in um, the national imagination and particularly in charismatic circles that were heavily influenced by Hal Lindsey and his reading of the world. And so, yeah, it, it sort of, for me, it brought up kind of childhood feelings about the end of days. How about you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, so I did, I did read this book and even underlined lots of things in it with a red pen as a 12 year old, mm. but like, here's, oh, here's the last, is that really yours? I believe it is. Oh my goodness. Oh, I see your mom's name in the front. It's my mom's name in the front page. Oh. Um, I stole this from my mom. Um, and no, you can't have it back. It's mine. Um, <laughs> But I think this, I think you were right about saying that there's something about like the young imagination and you're reading this and it's like about war and it's like, here's the last paragraph about Russia. I mean, this sums up Hal Lindsey's view of Russia mm -hmm. and what this was about. He says, we have seen that Russia will arm and equip a vast confederacy. This powerful group of allies will lead an attack on restored Israel. So this was part of the, his plot that he thought was in the Bible that Russia is going to attack Israel, not Ukraine, Israel. Right. Um, However, Russia and her confederates will be destroyed completely by an act that Israel will acknowledge as being from their God. This act will bring many in Israel to believe in their true Messiah. The attack upon the Russian confederacy and the resulting conflict will escalate into the last war of the world involving all nations. Then it will happen. Christ will return to prevent the annihilation of all mankind. Yes, it is. It is um, quite terrifying. And I. That's dramatic I, stuff, right? Yes. And I think that we should, you know, I, I, I think for me, I was, I don't know about you, but I've been kind of glued to the news um, and just seeing um, the intense suffering that the people of Ukraine are undergoing. Mm -hmm. And it has been entirely disturbing. So I don't want to take, you know, we, we are talking about. Um, the kind of imagination around Russia mm -hmm. um, and how that has played out in the news. Um, but I also feel like we need to just say how just terrible and, and really horrifying it has been to watch um, this, this country be overrun. What, what, as we are recording this right now, I believe the capital of Kiev still stands, but it is expected to be under heavy attack. Yes. Maybe um, not by the time you're listening to this. Yes. Um, we could sit here and wallow in the gloom of it all. And you would probably wallow with us. Oh, listener, that's kind of really, I mean, I, I'm not good enough at political science to analyze the United States's role in all of this, but it mm -hmm. feels, it feels rather impotent at the moment. Um, but but what we can do, though, is is apply such eyes and ears that we have to the religious angle on this, particularly to, you know, just this issue of like, what is what is the spirituality of like Vladimir Putin? Like, what does he believe in? Like, does he? I, I, maybe here's a backup question. Mm -hmm. What's what what's what's the demographics of religion in Russia? Oh, right. Like, what are like, do people worship in Russia? What do they worship? How does yeah. that happen? Um, well, according to the U.S. State Department. Um, there are about 142.3 million people in, in Russia as of 2020. And that's the population. Yes. Okay. Um, and with an estimated 63% of them being or identifying as Orthodox. Oh, 63%. 7% as Muslim. 26% as having no religious faith whatsoever. Wow. And then the remaining groups that constitute about 1% each um, or less include Buddhists, 
Protestants, Roman Catholics, Jews, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, Baha'is, some members of the International Society of Krishna Consciousness, Pagans, Tengrists, Church of Scientology, wow. and on and on. So there's, there are very, very small minority groups. I looked it up um, prior to this, uh, prior to our conversation, and according to some denominational um, estimates, there are about six hundred thousand Pentecostals. Because I'm always interested in, yeah. in those groups in Russia. Yeah. So, um, but I just listed a lot of groups that are very much in the minority. Uh So overwhelming majority are either, um, Orthodox Muslim or nothing. 63%. I, I'm a, I thought for sure like Catholic and Protestant, I mean, to choose groups that I understand better than some of the other groups. I thought that we, I thought they would be more than 1%. Yeah. It's really fascinating how, you know, I don't know about you, but when I when I read those statistics, I was really struck by how difficult it is to kill religion. <laughs> um, if you think about the Soviet Union as being an a non-religious, maybe anti-religious right. form of governance, right? It, and its downfall was, I believe, in 1991 was the fall of the Soviet Union. We haven't had that much time for recovery, and yet. Look at this. So I think this is yeah. in many ways reveals the resilience yeah. of like the religious impulse generally. How uh, I could, I could make probably like an educated guess that wouldn't be horribly far off from the truth, but you know, as long as we're scholars, we should do a little better. <laughs> right. When I hear a phrase like Russian Orthodox, I'm thinking, okay, there was a kind of a split. I think of the year 1000 because it's such a round number. Round sure, numbers help sure. for history. Not good for historians, <laughs> but good for me, for my mind. I'm a historian, but you know, I, you know, 1,000 is a good number to be like, oh, yeah, the Orthodox and, and what we call the Catholic Church is split from each other in a more formal way. Mm-hmm. And um, like how and I, I would guess that like what is Russian Orthodoxy, it's just the particular instantiation of Orthodoxy in Russia. Is that true? That is my understanding. Um, I believe 1054 is the magic oh, number. Yes, 1054. Uh- and of the great schism. No, that's close enough. My, my doctoral advisor used to say, talking about more ancient history, this is like ancient or Eastern history. He used to say, eh, when you're an ancient historian, what's a thousand years between friends? That's but. really cute. <laughs> that is really cute. Shout out to Peter um, Machinist. Yeah. As far as I understand, um, about half of Eastern Orthodox Christians generally live in Russia, but there are also other forms of Orthodoxy, including right. Greek, Right. Um, including that's what um, most people think of Greek Orthodoxy. Yeah. And I think that at least in this corner of the U S there's a, a, um, fairly strong Greek Orthodox, yes. um, population. Right. So there's a, a huge, beautiful church here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Beaverton. Oh yeah. I've, I've seen been it. To. Yeah. It's beautiful. They have the round kind of, um, mm-hmm, top, yeah. Uh, and they use a lot of icons. Yeah. I visited there once and I didn't know I'd never been to an Orthodox service and it was super long. Yeah. And which made me laugh because I grew up in charismatic services. <laughs> and those are long too. Yes. But um, it was stunning. Just a lot of sights and smells and, you yeah. know, just a totally different aesthetic experience. So it's a sensory overload. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in a really great way, I think my, at least that was my experience of it. I really enjoyed it. But anyhow, so yeah, that, that is, I mean, most of the, when I think about the students that we teach um, here in 
in Oregon. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've, I think I've had like one or two seminary students who were adult converts into orthodoxy, but it's very rare to meet a student who was raised um, as orthodox. So what I'm saying is right, like right. We, are, we are culturally very unfamiliar with this group. Well, I remember presenting to a class one time when we were talking about the Bible and it was like, we were talking about canon, not yes. with two ends, which is the thing you get shot out of at the circus. But the little slow on the laugh there, but yeah. you get the point. Okay. Yes. Uh, but rather with one end, meaning namely the set of authoritative books. And I was like, if we're talking about like Christians, whom are we talking about? And I pulled up like this big, big, big overview of like all Christian religious identity in the world. And even as I was reviewing it with the students, it was actually shocking about how many millions of people, how big the Orthodox churches were. Yes. It is not an insignificant number of Christians in the world. Yes. Just because they're not influential here in the States doesn't mean they're not. Uh, precisely. Not quite prominent in other parts of the world. And I think we're seeing that right now. There, there are some really striking images um, that I've seen on social media of um, Russian Orthodox leaders blessing the war on Ukraine, like in sanctuaries, blessing uh, guns. Okay. Yes, yeah. let's let's go. So they're there. quite involved in this process. Now this is fascinating. Okay, so there's an article which we'll post, and we're you know we'll post all of our sources here and the, and the State Department site and so on. Even a link to the Lake Great Planet Earth, which you can still buy probably in its 299th printing. Oh, I'm sure. Um, the version I, I, know I have. You can actually. I just bought one a couple of years ago. <laughs> I thought the version I had here was like an original, and I looked in the front cover, and it it lists up to 16 printings. Through 1970, yeah. 1971. My version's 1970, which is the year it came out. But if it's already listing 16 printings, I can't be the first printing. It must be 16th. So you know, there was a movie, um, like a, a TV docu series that was oh, done yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, many different kinds of like imagined kind of fan fiction versions right. of it. It was just like it's hard to overemphasize the importance so, of that book. Uh, so we're gonna post all this stuff. But I'm looking at an article here. Um, this is on unheard.com. Really good article just about it. And and the article is called um, um. Putin's spiritual destiny. And I was like, I was partly reading this article and I know you've read it as well because we shared it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was, I was reading it partly because I was hoping they were going to say just to learn rather than Googling it or going to Wikipedia is Vladimir Putin also Russian Orthodox. And it turns out what is the answer to that? That in fact, yes, he is. Yes. But, Oh, I thought you were, I thought you were, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. I was just stalling. Yeah. I'm reading from the article. Uh, Putin was born in Leningrad, a city that has reclaimed its original saint's name. Maybe you could talk about that backstory. To a devout Christian mother and atheist father. His mother baptized him in secret and he still wears his baptismal cross. Right. So there's something fascinating there about that split identity that almost seems to embody what Russia became during the Soviet period, which was deeply orthodox, but also this like atheist thing. Yeah, that's a really fascinating uh, and also a, a, you know, I think a lot of people are trying to get into the, the headspace of, of Vladimir Putin. Right, right. And I don't understand all of the economic and military and just general political reasons for this action that he's, he's taking. Um, but I was really fascinated to read this sort of, this take on the idea that he imagines himself to be a man with a religious calling. And what is that calling, pray tell, according to this article at least? Well, according to this article, I think he sees himself as a um, defender 
Oh, there's a great quote. The true defender of Christians throughout the world, the leader of the third Rome. Yikes. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, I say yikes, like that's very grandiose. It is. And and quite like when somebody as powerful and as ruthless as Putin, that's kind of scary. (laughs) Well, Uh, you know, and and so one thing this article points out is that Ukraine, besides all of the other significance it has for Putin in terms of geography and so on, has this spiritual significance within Russian Orthodoxy as Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. at least an imagined, if not real, kind of like beating heart home of Russian Orthodoxy is in fact Ukraine. So there's this like Mm -hmm. spiritual dimension that goes along with the other dimensions. Yeah, it's really interesting because a couple of days ago I saw that the American embassy um, in the Ukraine, I think it was, or in Ukraine, um, had posted a a mocking meme about how old and how important culturally Ukraine was compared to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Moscow. <laughs> Sorry, there's Moscow, Idaho. <laughs> totally different place. Same thing. But, um, <laughs> but you can see, you can see how. Um, well, I'm not sure if the person who posted that knew a lot about the religious background or <laughs> right, not, but right. you could see how that would be extra infuriating if you imagine that the um, the center of your your um, kind of national sense of spiritual right. calling right. was not in your grasp. Not in your country. Okay, so this article, um, the article here, I should mention mention his name, um, Giles Fraser journalist, broadcaster, and rector at the um, the South London Church of St. Mary's Newington. Mm-hmm. So shout out. We'll have to tag him on Twitter here. Should have invited him. We just didn't think of it in time. Okay. But um, it's all moving very fast. This is all happening very yeah. quickly. Okay. Yeah. But basically the article says, and I'm, I'm, ah, here it is. Um, in 2019, I didn't know this at all. That's really recent. 2019, mm-hmm. the Ukrainian arm of the family of Orthodox churches declared its independence from the Russian Orthodox Church. And the nominal head of the Orthodox family, Bartholomew the First of Constantinople, supported it. Yeah, you know what's fascinating? I I saw an article, and I think, and we'll post this one too. It was a, um, I think, religion dispatches article mm-hmm. that basically argued this is a religious war, Ooh. and they they argued that what what Westerners were not seeing was exactly that those tensions wow. that really started coming to a head in in um when russia annexed crimea in um 2014 Mm -hmm. and are now energizing this conflict well you bringing up the idea that this is a religious war i mean this to me is haunting and i think anytime you get like wars wars and rumors of wars Mm -hmm. as hal Lindsay used to put it there which is a a, a biblical phrase (laughs) yes uh, as, as no Hal Lindsey, he's the one who said that. Right? <laughs> yeah, Jesus said wars and rumors of wars. This is Mark thirteen, right? The little apocalypse mm-hmm. in Mark. I yeah. think. I think that's haunting, right. A haunting passage. I'm a biblical scholar, but sometimes I don't always know the it's things close in the enough. book. Um, you're but, you're Hebrew Bible. <laughs> so when 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 one thing that's unnerving when wars and rumors of wars start to come up, and you get this haunted feeling, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of nine eleven vibes here, by the way, mm-hmm. that this enemy you just don't totally understand what they're all about, like. And here's the last paragraph of this article we're referring to. I think that puts it in a fascinating way. Um, the Western secular imagination doesn't get any of this. I added that last part. Mm-hmm. It looks at Putin's speech the other evening and it describes him as mad. 
He's insane. Yes. Which is another way of saying we do not understand what is going on. And we show how little we understand by thinking that a bunch of sanctions is going to make a blind bit of difference. They won't. Quote, Putin said, Ukraine is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. The author says that's what this is about, spiritual space, a terrifying phrase steeped in over a thousand years of Russian religious history. You know, that that idea of the modern mind not understanding what it, Putin is, ha- it is doing mm-hmm. um, and categorizing it as madness made me think of that classic text, Madness and Civilization mm. um, by Michel Foucault. Mm. But basically, like Foucault famously traces the history of madness and argues that modern people don't have a really a category for interacting with people outside of medicalizing mm-hmm. like these kinds like so someone would yeah. say he belongs in an asylum you yes, know like yes, as yes. a as a way of right. making a derogatory statement instead of and I, I take this article to be inviting us to think seriously about Putin seriously considering his own role as part of this cosmic story wherein yes he's a kind of a messianic figure and also someone who's fulfilling biblical prophecy that that is you know someone who has that kind of conviction is scary especially if they have a lot of power agreed um did you ever have an experience where you suddenly came across an author of a book you've read and you saw their face and heard them talking for the first time and you were like oh that person. Yes, of course. I had that experience recently because really? there's an individual who is a correspondent for the New Yorker in Moscow. Maybe not right now. I'm not sure where he is, but his name is Joshua Yaffa. Okay. And he wrote a book that I read half of called Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Highly recommended. Really well really? written. Really? Okay. I started reading this in 2020. Um, I think I did. I always put the date. Yep, 2020. I started yes. reading this. And... I'm bringing this around to the Russia conversation that we're having here. Just give me a second. So the first chapter of this book is about, it's, it's a, it's a, the first chapter is called the Wiley man, the Wiley man. Um, and he talks about a Russian sociologist who, um, worked in the 1980s named Yuri Lavada, who came up with this concept of the quote Wiley man. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me let me read you a little bit about what the Wiley man is. In 2000, this is from page 10 of Between Two Fires. In 2000, the year Vladimir Putin ascended to the presidency, Lavada, the sociologist, published a new essay, an attempt to work through what for him had become a frustrating mystery, the persistence of the Russian personality type he had spent so much time coming to understand. Who was this person if he or she could no longer be called Soviet, right? Because mm-hmm. now it's post mm-hmm. Lavada titled the essay, The Wily Man, which identified a new species, not Homo Sovieticus, the, the, the Soviet human, but something more lasting and universal. The Russian Wily Man, Lavada wrote, quote, not only tolerates deception, but is willing to be deceived and mm. even requires self-deception for the sake of his own self-preservation. Lavada saw him ultimately as a clever and resourceful creature. Quote, he adapts to social reality, looking for oversights and gaps in the ruling system, looking to use the, quote, rules of the game for his own interest. But at the same time, and no less important, he's constantly trying to circumvent those very same rules. 
And this is kind of the sociological thread on which Yaffa hangs this book. Portraits of characters who are like in Russia today trying to balance this weird kind of identity thing. And the chapter I stopped on, which I regretted because of its importance now to understanding this moment we're talking about, is um, this chapter, in fact, on the Russian Orthodox Church. It's called The Last Free Priest. Mm. And I can't do it justice, but I'll say that the chapter is about a priest, an Orthodox priest, who essentially isn't going along with the state church, wow. which is pretty much pro-Putin. Right, right. I mean, As those pictures of the yes. blessings of of oh, military oh. equipment to- attest to. Totally. I mean, this Last Free Priest chapter ends with this, this portrait of basically... Um, as 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 Yaffa puts it, you know, a dissenter. Yes, I mean, just this idea that, like, well, I, I I can't find the quote, but basically saying, the Russian Orthodox Church is definitely in league with Putin, and the main bishop of the Orthodox Church in Russia is like a big Putin supporter. That's like, fascinating. This is a real thing, but it made me think when we were talking when you were talking about those numbers and the atheism versus the Orthodox, what it would have been like to just what it would be like to be a member of the Orthodox Church in Russia over the last say 40 years and to have experienced just like these mind-bending turns of culture but then some things really stayed the same and how do you stay on the right side of it and like ugh, just like confusing right well this brings to mind and I don't want to go too light here but this brings to mind a series I recently binged called Inventing Anna oh which is the story of this young woman who was born in Russia. Her name was Anna Sorokin. I Anna believe it's her last Karenina? name. No. <laughs> Sorokin, which is apparently like Smith in Russia. Okay. And um, then she moved to the un- United States, changed her name to Anna, Anna Delvey, claimed to be a Russian, or not a Russian, a German heiress. Oh! Swindled oh, a bunch of people. I saw the preview for this. Oh my goodness. And now Shonda yes. Rhimes produced a story about her life. But one oh, yeah. of the themes, uh, and I won't spoil that story, mm. but one of the themes that keeps coming up is how did Russians adapt to life after the fall of the Soviet Union? Yes. And a lot of speculative things happen, um, or storylines kind of get spun out about the high levels of corruption and just this idea that you need to create a new version of yourself. And Anna Delvey, uh, also known as Sorokin, um, creates this mythical version of herself and then comes to the States and sells it quite well until (laughs) she doesn't. Until it falls apart. Yeah, but that has kind of stuck in my mind. And when I think about this this current um, moment, And I think about, so there are hundreds um, and I believe thousands of Russians who have very bravely protested this war effort. And I was so stunned. I actually, you know me, I'm not a crier at all, but I teared up when I saw a video of that because it it seems quite clear that they are risking their lives and maybe the lives of people that they love Mm. by doing that and how um, extraordinary that choice was based in all of these kinds of like swirling stories about identity. So yeah, it's just a, we're in an, a strange moment in time. Yeah. This, this looming specter of just like a world that has just mutually exclusive claims on spiritual space and who, what belongs to whom and when, and was something robbed? I mean, it's like echoes of like long-standing conflicts, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict come to mind, or, yes. you know, even any number of claims happening in the United States right now. I mean, it, they're not exactly analogous, no doubt, but like even in like this, this kind of 
like rash of like school board battles and and legal like legislation going on about like uh, or even you know we referenced I think in a recent episode the um, the Trojan Horse Affair podcast which is very much about the spiritual space of a nation and its schools and like who gets to say like what the religion is and so to think about this conflict right now is something that you know, if we go into a purely secular place, which perhaps, you know, many of us are just by way of our existence, but certainly, and, and many listeners might be as well by way of their identity, I don't know. But it, it, if we don't understand that implication for the people involved and only assume that someone like Putin is just like, he must be, because our theory is like, oh, he must be like losing his mind or he must be crazy or he can't figure anything out. It's like, well, what if there is an organizing principle here? It just isn't yours. And it is, it is definitely terrifying and it might be violent but it's, it's organized. I think one of the things that this is a, you know, you and I are always looking for reasons to say, this is why we should have religious studies or right, have. Right. And I think that this is a moment wherein um, scholars of religious communities in, um, in, in Russia, in Ukraine are needed now more than ever. Um, of course you and I are not that. And I was a little nervous even for us to talk about this, but um, I, I've learned so much over the last few days and I continue to learn from scholars who are doing really excellent work on this um, because yes, we need to, it, it, it's something that we need to um, not take for granted the organizing mm. principle of secularity just mm. because it's one that is taken off in our corner of the world. I like the phrase continue to learn that you said, even, even in the midst of, of anxiety inducing times. Thanks for listening, weirdos. For more, find us on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and our website, weirdreligion.com. Keep it weird. Yes.